Well, I don't know if you guys do this, but a lot of times in the evenings after I get home from work, I always tell Wendy, I, I want to relax, right? <laughs> and that, what that means is I just want to sit around and do something. And I will find myself perusing social media, kind of flipping down through social media, and I start reading comments. And you, you know me. If, if anybody is friends with me on Facebook, I don't post hardly anything. Maybe once, a, once every two years you might get a picture of something from me. I definitely try to remember my wife on our anniversaries and birthdays and that kind of thing because, uh, you know, that's what you do. Um, but... Uh, you know, I'm not a prolific poster, but I do read. And so you get into these conversations and you see conversations. The other thing I, I'm notorious for doing is I'll read a news article and then I'll flip down to the comment section. Oh, it's just brutal. It doesn't matter what the discourse is. It could be an article on, you know, a bake sale at a local high school. And the, the discourse in the comments are unreal. Uh, have hallway conversations. And what you end up being faced with is this question of what is true? What is the truth? Um, and in fact, you know, we live in a day that there are organizations and people whose purpose it is, they call themselves fact checkers. And, and they'll even, we have automated tools now that will search up and deem to you what the source of truth is that they go from, and they'll mark what you said as fake, right, or fake news. So we're in this idea, we can't trust, people say you can't even trust what you see with your own eyes, right, you can't believe it. We live in this state of where, where photoshopped is a verb. You can photoshop something, right? You can filter something. And, and so what you're seeing is not reality. It's got to be questioned, is it true? Uh, with the recent uh, 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 new Top Gun movie, right? We have Maverick again. But did you know there's a deep fake Tom Cruise? Anybody ever seen that? There's a deep fake Tom Cruise. Google that later. No, I actually don't. But, uh, but no, there really is. There's a deep fake Tom Cruise. You can't even trust if you see a video of Tom Cruise that it is Tom Cruise. Right? It's an actor. Now, now, the creator said, oh, we'll only use this for positivity. Well, maybe so. I myself have been the malicious victim of the deep fake. If you guys can go ahead and put this picture up. Uh, this, uh, if you'll probably see here. Yeah, well, that's scary. This is what my children do to me. This is a deep fake. And what they love to do is send this picture around. Ha ha, this is our mom and dad. If you don't recognize what this is, this is Winnie and I's faces swapped. And I'm telling you what. Praise God, these are not true people, because this is horrifying. It is literally terrifying uh, to, to behold, you know, that's what we look like with our faces swapped. Uh, good thing is when he's not here, she doesn't know I showed this. So uh, I should be, we'll see, okay. If this is actually the test to see if she listens to what I say. Um, but, but really more terrifying than these deep fakes or pictures of ourselves is really we live in a time and a culture that's unhinged itself, detached itself from the idea of absolute or foundational truth, right? There's, there's this idea of a directionless ideology that's perfectly okay. Self-fulfilling beliefs, right? Things generated from yourself that you support are, are emphasized with things like words like this. You need to discover your own truth, right? That becomes your purpose. Discover what's true for you. And it, it, it uses a substantiation for that. Let your passions, your desires, your experiences, and your imaginations be the basis for what you deem to be true. But a careful review of Scripture and just simply looking at the life, the, the, the sin nature and the way of the world, we see that this is nothing more than the, than the offspring of the same root that would drive mankind to seek a source of knowledge of truth that is apart from God, and in some cases is we weren't told the full story 
by God himself. It's the same desire that drove Adam and Eve to pursue the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and in so doing, listening to the satanic voice say, did God really say? Is that what God really said? And seeking to find some truth apart from God. It's the same heart cry, did God really say? We see that in Genesis chapter 3. It's into this darkness, and there's so much of light and darkness, both in John's gospel and in this first epistle, that, that John's going to reach across for us today. Literally 2,000 years ago, he would write these letters. More than that, actually. He would write these letters or, you know, in this series, but this letter specifically, to address with an urgency the declaration of the truth of Jesus Christ. He's established as a testimony, the testimony of the apostles, the fullness of the word of God, that we would have fellowship with God and the joy of believers. This is the purpose that we will see in 1 John this morning. Um, last time I, I, I got a chance to speak, we were actually studying the book of John, going through his gospel. And, uh, you know, at that time, you know, uh, the writer summarized the point of the entire gospel really in the words of John chapter 20, verse 31. You can see this on the screen here. It says, but these things were written, meaning I've written this gospel, right? Why? So that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and believing that you may have life in his name. That's the point. He's saying, look, I wrote this gospel so that you can know the truth. You know, all truth you would embrace in your life, the truth of Jesus Christ is the only thing that matters. It is the foundational truth of which you will find no other truth. And it's to this beauty that John would cry out in his gospel and write, this is why I'm writing it, that you know Jesus is the Christ, and in so doing, find eternal life. Now, the apostle John would also give a clear statement of why he wrote 1 John. So in John, 1 John chapter 5, 13, he says again, the same, th same idea of, I write these things, now listen to this, what he says, so that you who believe in the name of Jesus, why, why? so those who believe, that you may know that you have eternal life. What would we call that? The blessed assurance of salvation in Christ alone. We must see that this letter, that is the foundational premise, is the salvation and security in Christ alone apart from any work. We see that there's wisdom and tenderness and fatherly love. John, advanced in age, would write to encourage the churches, and listen to this, all who would claim the name of Jesus throughout all time that your assurance is safe and secure in Christ alone. Since this is the beginning, I want to take just a minute, and, and I apologize if you're not a fan of history, like if that's the part of class you tuned out of and turned off, I'll try to make this brief, but I just want to give you some context for the writer himself, the Apostle John, and again, the setting in which the letter was written. So John, again, was by trade, he was a, a fisherman, he grew up in an area on the north rim of the Sea of Galilee, which again is uh, very near the area where Christ himself would grow up. You know, you can see John kind of milling about the, the fishing boats and, and working with his dad, again, probably starting at a very young age. And at the time that Jesus comes along, he's likely in his early 20s. And upon hearing the voice of Christ say, come and follow me, John would drop his fishing nets. He would leave his father, and he would walk with Jesus. 
John was one of the closest three individuals to Jesus in his earthly ministry. John would literally walk with Jesus. I, I know for a minute, I mean, we expect this. This is the Bible. This is what we say. But can you imagine walking with Jesus like down a road? He would talk to him. He would eat with him. He would share life together with him. This is John, firsthand eyewitness to Jesus. He would witness the resurrected form of Jesus and be at the ascension when Christ returned to heaven, recorded for us in the book of Acts. Following this, John would remain in Jerusalem and he would become a leader in the early church. We also read about this in the book of Acts. Eventually, John would move sometime before 70 AD, the fall of Jerusalem. He would move to Asia Minor, to the city of Ephesus, right, cultural center, um, and, and he would begin to become the pastor of that church that had been started by the Apostle Paul. John would live and serve the body his entire life. We know this because of the persecution that he would face so severe that towards the end of his life, he was exiled to an island, which doesn't sound by nature uh, of the things the apostles suffered, but a, a terrible, absolute, uh, devastating thing in his life to which um, many historians record he never returned from. Some say he did, but he died likely um, in his late 90s, around 100 years old. His brother being the first to die uh, about 40 years earlier, and John being the last of the apostles who had seen Christ to die. So the letter of 1 John was written sometime in the last decade. So, you know, I grew up, uh, I'm a Gen Xer, I think, by, by years. So, uh, so again, in high school in the 90s, so I like to claim the 90s are mine, but these are the original 90s, right? The real AD 90s. Um, so, so John wrote, he's the OG 90s, right? Um, you know, he wrote in the original 90s. And uh, so, he, you know, this is a time where, this is about 50 years after the, the uh, death and resurrection of Christ. Um, and, and what was happening here, again, the, the area of Ephesus, a cultural center, it really was where the Roman Empire was expanding. You can see this. You can take trips today uh, to this area of the world and see all of the things that were going on in this day. But what was happening is there was a lot of false doctrine and heresy entering into the church. This is, again, 50 years after the death of, and resurrection of Christ. We read about this, this warning in Matthew chapter 7, verse 15, where Jesus said this. He said, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You see, this wasn't theoretical, hypothetical to John. He had seen this. He had seen the ravenous wolves attacking the truth of the gospel. The first major assault that came along was basically Judaizers, right? Which is the idea of, well, this Christ thing is good. Right? Christ is good. But let's add to that the law. Let's drop the law back on ourselves. Let's say there is some way that our self-righteousness still earns something. And oh, by the way, you have to follow these ritualistic things to be right with God. This great heresy was pervasive. It's what many of the letters of the New Testament are written to refute this error. Paul would so often eloquently almost in a legal discourse, write an exposition where he would lay out the error, he would lay out the truth, and then he would transition his letter to a great therefore statement. Many pastors will say when you ever look at a, at a, uh, at a letter of Paul, look for the therefores and find out what it's there for, right? So it's a beautiful, beautiful thing to say. But it's these great expositions against this truth. This, this truth actually threatens us today. This didn't go away. Right? The work of, of the evil one in this world doesn't change much over time. 
And we see that there is this, this nature in the heart of people to somehow add to Jesus. I've got to put something else. There's got to be something I can add to it. My works, my pride, my effort, something else. Jesus just can't be enough on his own. John would say, that's an error. But John would also explain that in his gospel. But, but John was facing other challenges when he wrote this letter. And they came from those in positions of power and leaders, again, wolves in sheep's clothing, right? Who were coming in and distorting two things, the truth of who Jesus was and the nature of sin. And we'll look at a couple of these things this morning. Um, this letter is also amazing, right? Because there, it doesn't start, like you don't get this... Uh, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the church of, and this beautiful greeting, I greet you. Then start like that. John doesn't start his gospel like that. How's he? he jumps into it with a sense of urgency. It's almost as if every phrase, you can feel the importance of what he's written. It starts simply. It's clear and concise. It leaves no room to make error. He says, if this is true, this is not true. Very, very clear. And there's a sense of urgency but I think what you also find here is John using words like my little children and my beloved. And what you see here is not belittlement. That's not meant to, to demean or belittle the readers. But this is an old man in his 80s writing back after knowing and seeing Christ saying, I love you and I want to tell you the truth and I don't want you to be deceived and I want you to have the blessed assurance that you can trust Jesus. And in so doing, you can know that you have eternal life in him. This is a sure thing. He writes with this fatherly perspective. It's almost a circular argument. Theologians actually struggle to sort of outline uh, the, the points of, of you know, 1 John. They, they kind of are, are cyclic, you know, cyclical the way they go through. Because it's more like you as a parent. I know you, you parents only gave instructions, the same instructions to your children one time, right? Never return to them. Or is it the process of over and over trying to tell your children the truth? Trying to correct their error in a loving way and saying, look, I know you've heard this from me before. I know you're tired of hearing this, but let me tell you again. And you see that same love and fatherly affection uh, in the writing that John would write here. And listen to this. The driving heartbeat of all that John writes in this gospel is the love of God and the love for one another. So, today we're going to look uh, quickly, and I promise that was a little longer intro, it's going to get quicker from here, maybe. Um, so, uh, 1 John chapter 1, uh, verses 1 through 4, uh, we'll just read that uh, together, or, or I'll, I'll read it to you, uh, follow along. It says, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, and which we have looked upon, which we have touched with our hands concerning the word of life, which is Jesus, by the way, the uh, reference to Jesus. The life was made manifest, and we have seen it. And we testified to it and proclaimed to you eternal life, which was with the Father and made manifest to us, made real. We saw it. That which we have seen and heard, what do we do? We told you about it. We proclaimed it to you so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, your fellowship is with God the Father and with the Son, Jesus Christ. We are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. So quickly this morning, we're just going to look at three things, three key things that as we look at the truth of what John writes, that we want to go into these as a framework in which we understand and we see what he's writing in the rest of the letter. First is the truth of who Jesus is. 
And you say to me, kind of got that. I've uh, been in church a time or two, and I think I know who he is. But this is such a beautiful thing, and I'm telling you, for those who have embraced Jesus, we will rejoice in this truth. So this is, the, this is what really happens. Jesus is fully God. Jesus, he is also fully, he was fully man. The faith that joins us to God rejoices in both his deity and his humanity. We'll see how John makes this point. So again, first priority here is, is John to establish the deity of Christ. We also see this, it's very reminiscent, so from the beginning is how, how, how the book starts, that which was from the beginning. Now, yes, that does, you know, there is a reference to the beginning of time. John specifically here is not referring to this, however, it's very reminiscent, and in fact, I hear the voice of Pastor Adam in my head, uh, so read with me, or, or look, look at this out of, out of the Gospel of John, I think you'll know where I'm going, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. And the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. And all things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made. In Him was life, and the light was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. John is saying, if you go back to the beginning of all that is, Jesus is there. Jesus is eternal and preexistent, to everything that was created, everything that is material. In the book of Revelations, also written by John, we see this, this truth you know, where he explains that Jesus is the Alpha and the Omega, right? We see that, right? We, we've seen that throughout church history. That means he's the beginning and the end. It's not that Jesus was at the first thing of the beginning, at the beginning. It's not that he was part of creation. He is the beginning of everything that is. Nothing is apart from from him. In addition to this gospel language, the letter of 1 John says this, really this from the beginning is really a statement of this is unchanged, the unchanging truth that we've given to you. That you can find assurance that this gospel does not move with fads and philosophies and movements of, in the heart of man. It is founded on the truth revealed by the Spirit of God. It's unchanging and true, meaning it's trustworthy. It's the truth. So why was this important for him to talk about? Because false teachers were claiming something, and that was that Jesus was created. And you say, what's the big deal with that? Because a lot of times they would affirm the specialness of Jesus. I mean, these were not people who were necessarily denigrating Jesus, or meaning dr dragging him down as, a, as a, an evil worker, but they were denying the deity of Christ. They were saying he was a really good guy, um, and in many cases, it was so appealing that people were brought in by it. But the Apostle John is crying out here saying, no, it is not enough to believe that Jesus is a really, really good human being. Now listen to this. There's no life that comes to a person that simply believes that. It is not enough for a person to say that Jesus was the greatest among men, but still just a man. It's not enough to say uh, that a person say that Jesus was the greatest prophet that ever lived, or to say he was the greatest miracle worker or teacher. It's not that you can say he had the greatest goodness of any man to live. Listen to this. The good news from God begins with the truth that Jesus is God of very God. In human form, but God of very God, John says, we believe Jesus who is God, and the faith that joins us to God rejoices in the deity of Jesus. 
John would go on to teach here a beautiful mystery of the personage or the personhood of God, right? One in substance, three in person, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. This wonderful mystery that to us is revealed in the manifestation, in the incarnation at the virgin birth. God in three persons is complete in himself. So often we try to teach, and I I think probably kind-hearted maybe, but in error that God created people because he needed something else. God did not need anything else. And what John is saying, the truth is God created all that is for his glory. Period. We see that beautiful mystery revealed here of the deity of Christ. So in this age of postmodernism, and you say, okay, absolute truth, I get it. Why are you on about that? Why do we have to keep talking about that? And why do you have to make such a distinction between those that are of God and those that are not of God? Why is that so important? Well, it's absolutely impossible in the short time that we have to go through the answer to that question. I just want to give you two quick points. First, the deity of Christ gives us confidence. Now listen, this is, this, this is one you may need to take home and think about, but it's very, very important. That the eternal life that he offers is real. <laughs> I know that sounds crazy because we all say we believe that. But to know that Jesus, when he offers eternal life through his sacrifice, that that is real. Because if any human person, in and of themselves, were to promise you eternal life, they cannot give it to you because they do not have it themselves. So important to understand that our confidence and assurance in eternal life and the promise of God through the sacrifice of Jesus, that Jesus being fully God can offer us the sure thing. Because this, God does not lie. There's no possibility that Jesus being fully God is unable to give full eternal life. Listen to this. The deity of Christ also gives us confidence that we're wise to entrust our lives to him. God alone is completely trustworthy. You know, I've thought a lot about this in our small group. We had an opportunity to talk down some similar lanes, and I told him ahead of this as I've been preparing for so, some time for this, and, and uh, you know, we talked about things we trust in. I mean, if you think about it, what really do you trust in? When you get up in the morning and you, you put your... Now, it's not wrong for us to trust that our car is going to start when we turn the key, right? I'm not saying in and of itself that is evil, but I'm talking about for your eternal soul, for purpose and meaning and joy in your life, what do you trust? You trust the government? You trusted elected officials? Right? They never fail us. Do we trust parents? Do we trust siblings? Do we trust children? They never fail us, right? The reality today is there's no one and nothing trustworthy except God alone. The deity of Christ says you can trust Jesus. What he says is true. What he says will come to pass. We can put confidence. Not only that, think about this. Jesus who was at the beginning is the creator of all that is. Can you imagine looking to the creator of a vehicle, a vessel, some engineering product and saying, I don't think you really know the purpose of this thing. I know you designed it, I know you built it, but you have no idea of the purpose. 
See, Jesus and his deity, we can entrust that his purposes, he knows us. He's the creator. He's the designer. He is trustworthy. So full assurance of our salvation starts with embracing the full deity, the full humanity of Jesus Christ. 1 John, verse 1, again, we go on to see that in both his humanity and, or his deity, he also emphasized his humanity, right? This human side of Christ. So he says, that which we have heard, sorry, in verse 1 here, that which we have heard, which we've seen with our eyes, which we've touched, those are all very sensory, right? They're sensory, seeing, hearing, touching. Uh, Chris and I were talking earlier, and this is true, by the way, I've looked at the study. Uh, it's, it's, it feels uncomfortable to use in a large room of people, but the, the word literally means groped. But it feels a little awkward, I'm going to be honest, that we groped Jesus. All right, like, That doesn't feel right to say, and I don't need to be coarse. But what I'm trying to say is, this is not like I, you know, a casual thing. This is saying, I have physically, with my physical body, seen and experienced Jesus. Right? This is serious. John is testifying. He's leaving an a eyewitness account that he saw the physical body of Jesus. 1 John Verse one, uh, verse four to one, chapter one, verse fourteen says this: "And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we've seen the glory, the glory of the Son from the Father, full of grace and truth." John says, "I've interacted with Jesus, right? I, I, I physically have seen him with my eyes. I physically touched him with my hands, and I leave this as a testimony to you. And and this we here, right? This we, this pronoun that's used several times here in in, in the in this this letter." In this first four verses, the we is the apostles, those who saw Jesus and have left this testimony. So again, he's saying you can trust the testimony of the apostles. Now, what was John kind of refuting here with this whole thing about, um, uh, you know, this Jesus not being fully human? Why does that matter? Well, they were teaching that Jesus was not really a human. He just kind of looked like one. He was like a, like a, like a phantom of a human. Right, it's, it's kind of epiphany of, of, of sorts of this, uh, um, this human form. The other thing that they were teaching, that was really uh, you know, Jews and others who would, would come along and say, there's no way that God would condescend himself to take on the grossness of our human form. Right? They'd also teach that Jesus' spirit was separate from his physical body. And again, this doesn't sound like that big of a deal, but I promise you it is. This teaching sprang out of something called Gnosticism or the Gnostic teachings derived from Greek philosophies and, and other uh, deviant error teachings. These ones who'd never experienced Christ, never known Him, were claiming all sorts of things not to be true. But the reason they created this separation, and we'll, we'll actually see this as we move into verse 5 and down through this, is they basically were separating what the Spirit does from what the body does. The Spirit is which is good, and the body which is evil and sinful, and any action of the physical body has no bearing on the soul huge heresy. And you can imagine if you taught people what you do with your physical body has no bearing on your soul. First, we know that not to be true by experience, but it led to all forms of debauchery and evil and wrong teachings. They would teach that the, the Spirit of God didn't come to, to Jesus at the birth, that He only came down at the baptism, and other weird, odd teachings about the Spirit being separated from the physical body. But John says these are errors. And you say, okay, I understand why his deity is important. Why is it important about this humanity thing? First, Jesus' humanity. 
as Paul would write in his letter to Timothy, a loving letter of truth, he'd say, this is how God can be the mediator between God and man. Because Jesus is both deity and man together. He's the only one that can bridge both sides and take on the judgment of God. It is what allows him to become the ransom for us. And I love this one. The second point here is Jesus, full humanity, invites us to go to him in help in our time of need. Listen to Hebrews chapter 4. I love these verses. If you underline in your Bible, I encourage you to circle these, remember them, and think on them. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14 through 16. Since then, we have a high priest who passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast to our confessions, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness. You know what's bound up in the words, our weakness? I don't know if you've ever come to the end of yourself trying to be good. Trying in some way to make the law apply to your righteousness. That word weakness captures all of the depth of your sin and depravity and hopeless condition apart from Christ. And he says he is able to sympathize with your weakness. But one who in every aspect, listen to this, was tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace. What? In our time of need. See, it's the humanity of Christ that gives us the assurance that the high priest that we approach, you know, I don't know if you've ever stood before a judge. You know, I've had, thankfully, very few experiences of that. But I can remember looking at the bench one time and thinking, ooh, is this a judge that will identify with my need to go as fast as I was going, right? You know, it, can he identify that I absolutely was right to be going the speed apart from the sign that told me the limit? Can he identify with me? Uh, unfortunately, he could not. Uh, but imagine standing before God, completely hopeless in your own sinful condition, and having no one to on your behalf, who can identify with your condition, plead on your behalf. Saying, this is the one. This is the one in his full humanity who can identify with you and who pleads for you. Jesus is the only one who was 200%. 100% deity, 100% humanity. This marvelous mystery we sing week after week. And, and i and I got to tell you, I'm convicted by this as well, so I'm not calling you out. What I'm saying is we sing these words so very often, and how, how quickly have we let them go by and never thought about what we were actually saying? Listen to these words. Come behold the wondrous mystery. In the dawning of the King, He the theme of heaven's praises, what? Robed in frail humanity. In our longing, in our darkness, now the light of life has come. Look to Christ who condescended and took on flesh to ransom us. The sureness of our salvation is completely tied to the truth of the deity and the humanity of Christ. Second, John's going to say to us the evidence of who John, uh, Jesus is, sorry, fully God and fully man, is supported. It's not something that is, is a leap into darkness. It's supported by two things, the foundational testimony of the apostles and the fullness of the word of God, or found in the testimony of the apostles and the fullness of the Word of God. Uh, again, in John uh, chapter 1, 
goes through and he talks about there in the, the beginning that we've seen with their hands. In verse 2 he says, the life was what made manifest. We've seen it, testified to it, proclaimed it to you. It's really easy to miss this, uh, especially in the first verse, there's this repeated, which we have seen with our eyes and which we have looked upon. It kind of feels like the same thing, especially in our language, the way we would say that. But in the original language, which, you know, it's, it's hard for us at times to translate, what he's really trying to say is the first, the first version which we have seen is like, I'm an eyewitness. I'm testifying. I'm giving a legal position that this is what I've seen. And the second is this heart's cry to say, I have witnessed this with my eyes. I have physically seen it with my human eyes. Now, just for a moment, imagine what what John is recalling when he thinks about what he saw in Jesus. John would be with him and watch him open somebody's eyes who were blind. Can you, I mean, again, we read this stuff. It's like, you know, we, we become so familiar with the miraculous that it fails to even move us. But John is saying, look, I've seen him make a blind man see. I've seen him loose the tongue of the mute. I watched as they brought in a paralyzed man, and at the actions of Jesus, he got up and walked. Can you imagine John, a fisherman all his day, growing up on the water, comfortable with boats, get into a position where he is so terrified by the tempest that is raging against him. John saw the flashes of lightning. He heard the thunder, he felt the wind, and he felt the fear in his heart that I might die from this. Then he watched Jesus get up from his sleep and with his word turn the tempest to the calm. He saw the multiple thousands fed with rations that were completely incapable of feeding the thousand much less the disciples themselves. He saw a dead man decaying in his grave at the word of Jesus rise up and walk. He saw the transfiguration. He saw the glorious, the veiled glory of Jesus while he was here on this earth. He was one of three people along with his brother James and Peter who would physically witness and see Christ glowing in the beauty of his glory would testify to that in his gospel. In 2 Peter, we would see that Peter, the other, one of the other men there, would say this. He says, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and the coming of the Lord Jesus, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For we received honor and glory of the Father, and the voice was born to him in majestic glory, saying this, This is my beloved Son, who I am well pleased. They heard that. They heard that said. We ourselves have heard the voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain, speaking of the transfiguration. He's saying, look, you can trust this testimony. You can trust the testimony of the apostles, not those who are leading you astray. Now, he also gives the evidence of Jesus Christ in the summation of Scripture. And I'll move quickly here because you'll see this more and more as we go through the weeks. Um, I, I do invite you to, to really read through 1 John. Take time to do that. You know, it's a short book, only five chapters, and, and you can get through it quickly. And what you'll see is this repeated theme, and I'll just point out a few of them, where he says, we are writing these things, or the purpose of writing these things, just to highlight a few. So in 1 John 4, we talked about that one already, but we write these things is the phrase. 
uh, second, uh, second chapter, verse 1, I write these things to you. Verse 7, I write these things to you. Verse 12, I write these things to you. Three times in verse 13, I write these things to you. Two times in verse 14, another time in 21, again in 26, and in 513 in the purpose, he says, I write to you. And if you don't get the point of the repetitive nature of what I just said is, he's emphasizing the importance of writing this truth down, right, as a record. Scripture is a word of testimony inspired by the Holy Spirit that we can trust. Jesus is saying here that to both his present counterparts that he was writing to in the churches of Asia Minor, and to us today, for all who would claim the name of Jesus, who would read this this account, this letter, you can trust what is written. Not to mention the full summation of prophecy given throughout all Scripture, all Scripture from Genesis to Revelation, pointing to Christ. Second Peter would express this, again, Peter would express the same thing in 121. He said, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but spoke from God as they were carried along by who? The Holy Spirit. Paul would echo this again in his thoughts where he said, faith comes by hearing, and hearing what? By the Word of God. The Word of God is the complete and full revelation of His truth. But the problem for us today is when we come at conflict with what the, word is, what the world is saying about the Word of God, if we have made a shaky foundation, we put ourselves at great risk. See, many who would profess the name of Jesus, including in this day, they found their faith on emotional experiences or their own imagination. And sometimes this may lead to some right things about God, but very often and every time, it creates a shaky foundation. So when you ask somebody to tell you, okay, what is, what is it about Jesus? Who is this Jesus? They'll answer you out of experiences, and they'll answer you about imaginations. You always hear like, well, I like to think of God this way. That's usually where I'm like, uh-oh. Uh, you know, that lines up with what God's Word says, I'm good. But uh, yeah, it's going to be a little, I like to think of God in this way. And I'm sure I've said that. So if you say that, I'm not hitting at you. Uh, probably do it myself. But, but it's not grounded in Scripture. This is the kind of faith that's shaken by the assault of the world. There's been a movement in today's world to deconstruct your faith, right? And the problem is it's very easy to deconstruct that which is built on a shaky, unstable, and faulty foundation. The Word of God, again, is a true record. We must make sure we build. Apart from this foundation, when some discouragement arises... Some disillusionment happens. Some temptation rages against you. And sin begins to override. That soul bumps into and falls apart from the attack of this world. It has nothing to do with the truthfulness of the gospel or the message. But it has to do with the faultiness of the foundation. But listen to this. Believing in Jesus is not a leap into the darkness. It's not a faith that rests on, on that which is unfounded. It is claimed to be eyewitness testimony and the truth of the Word of God. So for us today, why is it important that we saturate ourselves with the Word of God? Because that is what truly strengthens faith. To saturate, you know, we need, we need to hear the Word of God. I'm so thankful you're here today. You need to hear the Word of God. We need to share the Word of God with one another. We need to be speaking the Word of God to one another. And the world is dying to hear the truth of the Word of God 
that we keep so often bottled up. The Word of God must be shared and is the strength of faith. You know, I just put this plug in as a small group leader. <laughs> we have a great time that you can enjoy. If you're like, hey, I, I don't have a source of the Word of God in my life. Or I don't have a, a group of people that I, I get together with. Hey, take that opportunity. Join a small group, right? Find one you like, right? They, maybe they have good breakfast. I don't care. Get in and study the Word of God together as believers, right? Find a home group. Find, again, a place that you can identify why? Because the third point, fellowship with God and with others is produced in genuine faith in the truth of Jesus Christ, resulting in true joy. And quickly in closing, I just want to look at this. In the third and fourth verse of John chapter 1, first John, sorry, chapter 1, it says, that which we have seen, we have heard, we proclaim to you, so that you too may, what? Have fellowship with us, and indeed your fellowship is with the Father and the Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. Now, your version of, the, uh, of Scripture may flip that word over to your. Not that it's necessarily wrong, but it's not, the, it's not exactly what they wrote. What he's saying is, look, our joy, our, apostle, you know, our joy as apostles is encouraged by you seeing the truth, responding to it, and having the assurance of your faith, your eternal life in Jesus. That's what brings me joy. That's where joy comes from. You know, fellowship's one of those words that, um, I, I don't know if you like me, I, I grew up in church, right? The door were open, I was there. Um, uh, you know, we, we, were, we were there every, every Sunday, and I went to many events called fellowships, which very little fellowship <laughs> probably actually occurred, right? Um, you know, there, there was definitely some, some social things, uh, maybe eating together or something like that. But when we think of this word fellowship, it is right for us to describe that as an intimate relationship where life is shared together, right? It's right to think of it in this way of a deep friendship, um, interest, common interest, or where we share our interest, we share our affections, we share our passions in our lives. It's not just a social activity. There's nothing wrong with eating and drinking together, right? There's, there's nothing wrong with watching sports together. It's not, it's not wrong to go to a, you know, kids' games together. Those are great things, and we can enjoy them. And there is some level of fellowship, but it's not an eternal fellowship, right, that John is referring to here. He's talking about the eternal fellowship of that which can't be taken. So this fellowship, listen to this, is grounded on this truth, that we find that the source of our lives, right, that the source of our lives is Jesus, and we want to share that with one another, right? And you're like, well, that, that seems like we'll get bored of that pretty quickly. <laughs> no, this is the beauty and wonder as we say this. We say, look, let our passions inspired by Christ be passions we do together. With Jesus as our Lord, let us share in obedience to him together. Let's encourage one another with his word, right? We are not going to be perfect. Adherence with the law and self-righteousness does not save, but we encourage one another in fellowship around obedience to his word. Jesus is our commander. Let us share in his mission together. Jesus is the one who loves us so more than you will ever be loved. Let us share that love with one another. We'll read about that later in his letter. This right fellowship is definitely a, a, is brought together by, by togetherness, but it begins with the vertical relationship in embracing the truth of God first. That's where it begins. And in so doing, our horizontal relationships are made right as well. 
We are broken people. It is impossible to think that we can find fellowship apart from the reconciling work of God in our lives, either with Him or with others. There's a great and wonderful diversity of all that God has made in mankind. Right? This diversity should be celebrated. Right? We should find that of cultural, ethnic, economic backgrounds, find a common fellowship together. Why? Because we are all under the same banner of the blood of Jesus Christ. So what happens as a result of this testimony and the fellowship it produces is joy. I think that's the lost thing of the Christian experience is true joy. I wonder how many times I have failed to experience joy because I've failed to come to the truth in its majesty and wonder. Make right the relationship with God. Trust upon the testimony of the apostles, the truth of his word. Having fellowship, close fellowship with God and with others. Finding joy, joy exceeding. A joy that this world cannot understand. John was known his literal title, his nickname, with, along with his brother was, anybody know? The Son of Thunder, right? I don't know how you get that name. Seems like something you put on the back of your Harley jacket, right? Son of Thunder. But, uh, you know, I don't know, if, I don't know if you walked in a room and everybody slid to the other side, but, uh, but, but he was a serious individual, right? This is not a weak individual. This is somebody who would combat and give absolutes but you know what he transitioned to and what many refer to him theologians is the apostle of love, right? This one who would speak so beautifully of the love of Christ shed abroad for us and the love and the joy he had in experience for sharing that love with other believers and to give that love for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should have eternal life. It's this today that John's going to cry out in his letter. And as we go through the next series of weeks, I pray this ingrain in our hearts evermore. Let's pray.